Hello, my name is Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. In a culture where biblical Christianity is falling more and more out of fashion, it's increasingly important to have confidence in your faith. Today we are beginning a class called Why Christianity, in which we will lay out a few of the ways that our faith makes sense and works best. And we're really looking to straddle both of those, the thinking side of Christianity and how it makes sense from a rational perspective, but also the practical side of Christianity and how it gives you a better life. In this first session, Jerry Weirwell will introduce our class premise, describe the cultural tension, and speak on the value of taking this class. Although this is an apologetics class, it is also significantly different from the previous one we aired back, starting with Podcast 50 back in 2016, though there will be some overlap. Our end goal for this class is that it would build your confidence and encourage you to share your faith with others. Here now is Episode 388, Why Christianity Part 1, Introduction with Jerry Weirwolf. class is called Why Christianity? And we're going to talk about why the Christian faith offers answers that are coherent, that are valid, provable, and that actually have warrant for belief, meaning that there's good reason to believe in them. Truth is the most important thing in the world. Winston Churchill once said that truth is the most valuable thing in the world. So valuable, he said, that it needs to be constantly protected by a bodyguard of lies. Now, he said this in the context of the uh, world war that he was waging about the intelligence and counterintelligence, because in the Second World War, there was a lot of intelligence being hacked. And so the context was that truth is so valuable, you have to protect it. And by doing that, doing some counterintelligence to lead the enemy forces astray. Now, there's another individual, I think, that made a a very profound statement. Andrei Sakharov is the Soviet Union engineer who designed the nuclear bomb. And he stated that there was something more powerful that he learned about after designing the nuclear bomb. He says, I've always thought that the most powerful weapon in the world was the bomb, and that's why I gave it to my people. But I've come to the conclusion that the most powerful weapon in the world is not the bomb. It's the truth. In John chapter 18, when Jesus is on trial before Pilate, it reads, starting in verse 33, So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. 
For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? Pilate doesn't actually follow up that question. It doesn't seem all that important to him. What is truth? Well, according to Winston Churchill and Andrei Sakharov, truth is very important, and I think we think that too. And so this class is going to be looking at the truth. What is the truth? And why does Christianity offer the best answer to that question? We're in a time of our cultural climate that actually is having a little bit of a crisis with the idea of truth. But this actually has been a long time coming. There was a philosopher named Friedrich Nietzsche at the turn of the 20th century. He was an atheist, but he wrote a very profound piece of literature that I want to read to you. And it, it was a foreboding call for what was coming in the decades ahead with the subjectivization or the relativization of truth. It's called the parable of the madman. Have you not heard of that madman who lit a lantern in the bright morning hours, ran to the marketplace and cried incessantly, I seek God, I seek God, as many of those who did not believe in God were standing around just then. He provoked much laughter. Has he got lost? asked one. Did he lose his way like a child? asked another. Or is he hiding? Is he afraid of us? Has he gone on a voyage, emigrated? Thus they yelled and laughed. The madman jumped into their midst and pierced them with his eyes. Whither is God, he cried. I will tell you, we have killed him. You and I, all of us, are his murderers. But how do we do this? How could we drink up the sea? What were we doing when we unchained the earth from its sun? Whither is it moving now? Whither are we moving? Away from all suns? Are we not plunging continually, backward, sideward, forward, in all directions? Is there still any up or down? Are we not straying as through an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it become colder? Is it not night continually closing in on us? Do we not need to light lanterns in the morning? Do we hear nothing as yet of the noise of the grave diggers who are burying God? Do we smell nothing as yet of the divine decomposition? And God, too, decomposes. God is dead. God remains dead, and we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood off us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement, what sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of it? There has never been a greater deed, and whoever is born after us, for the sake of this deed, he will belong to a higher history than all history hitherto. Friedrich Nietzsche's point was that the madman was him, and he was coming to tell the world what it looks like without God, and he was in favor of it.
Because all those who came after that deed, he said, would belong to a history that was higher than everything that came before him. And that's the problem that we have today, is that the idea of theism, of just an almighty being, of God, is under attack from all sides. The culture that we live in is, can be described as postmodern, a culture in which truth is under attack by relativism, where truth is socially constructed by where you live, who you grow up with, who you know, your parents, your communities, uh, what your national laws are. Here's a definition of culture and why culture is so potent. Edward Hall, an anthropologist, writes, culture is often subconscious. It's an invisible control mechanism operating in our thoughts. A lot of times we grow up in a culture and we don't understand the ways that we develop our thought patterns. They kind of just form within our subconscious by the things we hear, the things we see. Not necessarily a specific education paradigm. He also said that members of a certain society internalize cultural components of that society and act within the limits as set out by what is culturally acceptable. In our culture, a lot of people feel pressure. Christians, or people who have certain sets of belief, feel pressure because of what our culture deems is what is acceptable. And this is something that goes all the way back to the time of Aristotle. Aristotle once described the problem of the challenge of culture and recognizing it as the problem of a fish in water. He says, knowing nothing but life in the water, the fish never realizes that it is wet. I think this description is apt for what is happening in America. A lot of our culture and the oppression of religious belief, no matter what vein it is, a lot of it is just something that comes with the culture and people grow into it, not really even recognizing it. And this comes from a worldview. Now, a, a worldview is a little bit different from a culture. A worldview is a set of beliefs about fundamental aspects of reality that ground and influence all of a person's perceptions, their thoughts, their knowledge, and their behaviors. Dutch theologian Andrew Cooper writes about a worldview that it's a life system rooted in a fundamental principle from which was derived a whole complex of ruling ideas and conceptions about reality. This class, Why Christianity, we're going to talk about a life system. We're going to talk about a way to understand fundamental principles and things that form ruling ideas and conceptions about reality. But there are different worldviews in our world, and that's why the class that we're presenting about why Christianity, we're going to show the way Christianity satisfies those answers and gives better answers than any competing alternative. Some of the worldviews out there that you can find come on the premise of for example, naturalism, where the only thing that's out there in the world is matter. Matter is all that there is and all that exists. Reality is a single dimension. Everything must be explained based upon physical laws, biology, and chemistry. Now, there is no supernatural realm, 
in a naturalistic view. All there are are just random chance happenings. Time plus matter plus energy equals everything you see and everything there is. Another view would be pantheism. A pantheistic worldview would be that everything that exists actually is part of God. And there really is nothing actually real in a sense. There is a divine entity of which everything comes from, but we're living in a, in a sense of a false reality. And we're just trying to get back to becoming one with the ultimate of the universe. That would be Hinduism, Taoism, Buddhism, some New Age mysticisms. There's also monotheistic worldviews like Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, believing in a single personal God, that reality and matter are composed of both physical and spiritual entities or realities, and that the one God is the one that created the, everything that exists. And as I already mentioned before, postmodernism is, is really not a religion, but it's, it's a worldview, it's a way of thinking that the world is composed of what we make of it. It's a socially constructed ideals, values, ethics, and everything comes from people coming together and deciding for themselves how best to live. Now, we have this cultural tension because of a, what's called a cultural polarization. Polarization is where you have like two opposing ends that push against each other in opposite directions, like a magnet. And in our culture, this polarization is becoming apparent in what's called the secular and sacred dichotomy. You have people that are very secular in the natural sciences and scientism and everything that is observable and provable by what you can see, taste, touch, hear, smell, things like that. And then you have the sacred, which would be religions and worldviews that see something beyond the physical. And they are kind of at odds with each other and pushing against each other. And this polarization has produced what's called a privatization of religion. And that really is the syndrome that our culture suffers from. And what we hope this class will actually give you uh, knowledge and understanding and some resources to be able to combat that. Because I'm sure you've all felt the pressure of one time or another or seen one of your friends or somebody where in the public sphere, Offering your personal religious views or talking about your religious views or acting in a religious way got some sort of a sneer or a frown or people wondering, why is, why is that person doing that here? Why are you praying at the table at a restaurant? What privatization is is that when people no longer feel comfortable or accepted to discuss or express religious attitudes, conversations, or behaviors. It's where the idea that you can believe what you want, but do so in your home. You know, don't bring your beliefs out here into the public sphere and present them to other people or talk about them. Reason being is because people have put on the religious thinking individuals the idea that if you talk about what you believe, you're going to offend somebody. And it's wrong to offend somebody. So you better not talk about that. Keep it to yourself. You're free to believe whatever you want. That's great. But don't like interfere with my life with what you believe. And so this religious privatization has pushed Christianity first out of schools, pretty much, 
And now it's pushing out of the public sphere in general to where you're only allowed to really have this sort of religious character and live as a religiously minded individual in the privacy of your own home. And this is kind of similar to what happened in the early church when the early Christians were preaching about the name of Jesus. That was not an accepted thing in the culture. People were upset because this preaching that they were doing was unraveling what they called stable society. Well, culture says don't offend people, keep your religious views to yourself, but what they're doing is they're basically forcing on to people who have a faith, a religion, their religion, which is that you don't have a right to talk about your religion. We want you to accept our premise of keeping your private life away from us, and we're going to push our private life into the public. Regarding this polarization, I want to read an article here. Uh, Ed Stetzer uh, wrote an interesting article here in the Washington Post. He starts off by saying, and this was an article in 2015, a couple years ago, he says America is undergoing a religious polarization with more adults shedding their religious affiliations, as evidenced in the latest from the Pew Research Center. The country is becoming more secular, he says, according to that research. In the past seven years, using the new Pew data, Americans who identify with the religion declined 6%. Overall, he says, belief in God, praying daily, and religious service attendance have dropped since 2007. Today's America is losing much of the general religious ethos that dominated the U.S., for hundreds of years. However, the religious in some ways are becoming more religious, he says. While fewer people said religion was somewhat important to their lives, there was a jump in those who said religion was very important. Of those who identify with a religion, Pew found an increasing in scripture reading at least weekly, participating in a small group and sharing their faith at least weekly, and church attendance numbers were relatively steady. The problem is, is that people who are nominal Christians, because his article is about nominal Christians are becoming more secular, is because people who are nominal in their faith end up drifting towards secularism, he says. Whereas the people who are actually committed, they actually stay committed. And even more so, there's actually a rise in the people who attend regular religious services. And I think that's the problem that we're facing in our culture, is this idea that if you're not prepared to face the cultural climate, if you're not prepared to understand why you really believe what you believe, then you're going to be attacked by the criticisms of the skeptics. You're going to be attacked by the criticisms of the cultural milieu that says, you know, we don't want to hear what you think. You can think what you want, but don't, don't tell us about it. Keep it to yourself. You know, if it's not science-based, then it's not true but you can still hold on to it if you like. So it's, it's this that we're trying to push against. And what this class is going to be about is we want to offer answers for the tough questions. We want to provide people an understanding of, well, what does the biblical story, what does it actually offer us in terms of understanding the world, understanding ourselves, understanding one another, understanding purpose, meaning, ultimate destiny, and we're going to do that by going through a series of different subjects. We're going to talk about some things like how the Christian worldview, which if we say Christian worldview, biblical worldview, we're talking similar terms there, even though 
there are Christian worldviews that aren't exactly the same as a biblical worldview, but take those as being interchangeable terms for this class. So the Christian worldview, how does that worldview then offer solutions for, say, example, with morality? Why would you think that the Christian morality offered is superior to any other morality? How does it take care of the disenfranchised, the marginalized, people like the poor or widows or countries that are are in need of aid and support, the helpless, the victimized innocent uh, children, things like that. How does the Christian worldview offer a better sense of community? How does the the Christian worldview bring people together? How does it unify people? How does it offer a more cohesive way of living together? One where there's not bickering and fighting. One where it's not a matter of power and struggle to gain uh, political or civil authority and be able to domineer that over others. How does the Christian worldview and its inclusiveness value human life? Why people are created equal in the eyes of God? Why, why, why do the people have these inherent qualities to them, virtues? Why does the Christian worldview help us understand wh- why we're here? There are a lot of different ways to ex- that people have come up with to explain why we exist. I don't think any of them are as satisfactory as the Christian worldview is. Same thing with what is, where are we going? What is the ultimate destiny of the world, of us, of humanity? There are a lot of answers to that out there. I don't think any of them can really meet up with where the Christian worldview tells us what's going on. Um, for the greatest thing, I think, is the Christian worldview explains why the world is the way it is. We're going to talk about suffering and evil. We're going to talk about the way to understand why life doesn't always go the way it should. If you talk to a naturalist, they'll just say, well, that was just blind chance. Too bad. Maybe better luck tomorrow. You want to talk to a a Hindu or a Buddhist, they're like, oh, actually, it's good. It's good to suffer because when you suffer, you're actually purging yourself and you're getting close to becoming one with the ultimate. There's a lot of answers out there. The Christian worldview offers the best. Where do we all come from? How do you, how do you answer the origins question? Where, how did the universe begin? There's a lot of hypotheses out there, but I tell you, I think the account in Genesis explains the way the world is. And I think that there's good reason. We're going to see arguments for how come the universe is so ordered. We have physical laws that are very constant the probabilities of which are astronomically low beyond even, we can't even write enough zeros behind these probabilities to try to fathom them. They're mathematically absurd, really. The basic objective of this class is going to be to show that the Christian answers to the big questions are better. They're better, and we're going to show that the reason why we can have confidence and be assured and have boldness in our faith and be willing to share it in the public sphere. There's no law against it. Actually, in our culture, in America, thank goodness, we're allowed to talk about those things. It's only a cultural oppression of people that say you shouldn't, that we can't buy into that. 
See, the major issue with privatization that I think is that Christians actually acquiesce to it. We go along with keeping our faith to ourselves because we don't want to uh, have people in line at the grocery store look at us funny. Or we don't want to tell somebody at the park, can I pray for you, God bless you, or to speak about the name of Jesus because we don't know who might be listening. See, we can't buy into that. We're supposed to be witnesses, and we're supposed to testify about the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we're proud of our faith, if we understand the reason why the answers are superior in the Christian worldview, then that will be inspiration for us to know that we have something great to share with the world. There was a a famous book written over a decade ago by uh, Richard Dawkins called The God Delusion. There was a book written in response to that called The Devil's Delusion. And I think it, there's a paragraph in there that I think really summarizes the essence of the problem that we're going to be talking about. He writes, and this is by David Berlinski, The Devil's Delusion. Has anyone provided proof of God's inexistence? That's in existence, not existence, his non-existence, not even close. Has quantum cosmology explained the emergence of the universe or why it is here? Not even close. Have our sciences explained why our universe seems to be fine-tuned to allow for the existence of life? Not even close. Are physicists and biologists willing to believe in anything so long as it's not religious thought, close enough. Has rationalism and moral thought provided us with an understanding of what is good, what is right, and what is moral? Not even close. Has secularism in the terrible 20th century been a force for good? Not even close to even being close. Is there a narrow and oppressive orthodoxy in the sciences? Close enough. Does anything in the sciences or their philosophy justify the claim that religious belief is irrational? Not even in the ballpark, he says. Is scientific atheism a frivolous exercise in intellectual contempt? Dead on, he said. There's a lot of questions that it seems, for at least the naturalist, have no answers. All of these questions we're going to talk about and show that the answers the Christian worldview provides not only satisfy, but are thorough, coherent, and are true. If we understand more specifically why the Christian worldview is the right answer, is the right worldview, and that we can push against the cultural oppression that we experience then we'll be more confident in our faith. We'll be able to have the knowledge and understanding to share with others. And we will be able to demonstrate why Christianity is awesome. So coming up next will be Sean after we take a break. And he's going to give us a little bit of the lay of the land to get a picture for kind of where we're going and some thoughts to consider as we're going to be entering into why Christianity. Well, that concludes the first episode of this class, Why Christianity? 
in which Dr. Jerry Wirwell laid out the introductory material here. If you'd like to leave a comment or ask a question about anything he said in this episode, please come on to restitudio.org and find episode 388, Why Christianity Part 1, and add your comment to the post there. Also, just so you know, I put some links to previous apologetics materials in the show notes for this episode, as well as Jerry Weirwill's website, jerryweirwill.com, where you can get in touch with him, as well as find out more about other articles and materials that he has produced over the years. We got a couple of comments in on our last episode, 387, God is Enough, a sermon I had preached about the book of Lamentations, uh, easily the saddest book in the Bible, in my opinion, where we hear all about the just tragedy and trauma of the devastating destruction of Jerusalem and the exile that resulted. In the midst of it, the author, which uh, uh, my best guess would be Jeremiah there, although I haven't studied that in depth, says, great is your faithfulness. He puts his trust in God's love and faithfulness, God's emmet, and says that that is what he has, and that is enough to give him hope. And so John Bradley wrote in saying, thank you, Sean, another good sermon. The bottom line is, whatever happens, God is always with us. I totally agree with that, John. Paul Peterson also wrote in saying, Thanks, Sean. I wouldn't have appreciated the point of the sermon as much if you hadn't walked us through what living under siege was really like. The message of hope after that horrifying time is remarkable. Also, Brandon Duke wrote in on the Facebook group, which, by the way, if you haven't joined, please come on over and join. We'd love to interact with you on Facebook. It's uh, just called Restitutio Group, and you can find it that way. Brandon Duke wrote in saying, I appreciated Sean's message on maintaining perspective and purpose within intense suffering and loss. I appreciated it because it is such a difficult subject and a complex one something we approached in episodes 362 to 365 on why God allows suffering. What must it have been like to be one of the faithful to Yahweh, witnessing the devastation of your whole world and countenancing it as God's rightful judgment against your nation's unfaithfulness? How could you reconcile your innocent children's hunger, their deaths, within the context of God chastising his people? I think we likely would be challenged if we were there, sharing Job's portion of boils and ash, to do anything other than rage against God as a feckless thug, bullying and abusing his people into submission. Indeed, if we consider the world as a clockwork, a pre-written text that ticks and flows in every detail as God has predetermined, no possible reconciliation of the world with a good God is possible. But if rather... We look at God as a perfect person dynamically responding to the choices we make with the libertarian free will he entrusted us with as part of a dizzying complex interconnected world. We may start to recognize God's loving kindness, his faithfulness. How would we have looked on God had he miraculously intervened to protect a corrupt nation? kings who with their courts were adulterating themselves with other gods, what lesson would it have taught them and eventually taught us? Indeed, the world is difficult, full of thorns, pain and childbirth, and we eat or starve based on tilling the ground, sweaty and bloody. But that's what God allows us to choose, what God knows we must learn from. 
and what he is drawing us through and into trustworthy members for his coming kingdom. Ultimately, not only is God enough, but only God is enough. For without his overarching purpose for creation, as oriented towards forging and forming us, nothing is enough. Well, thanks, Brandon, for writing in some really good thoughts there. In the moment, it really is so difficult to reconcile God's goodness with his judgment, especially if we are the ones that are receiving that judgment. But I think that's to a large degree why Scripture is so helpful to give us that bird's eye view, to show us that God is so long-suffering. If we read the last couple hundred years of the history of the kingdom of Judah, we can see that God is over and over postponing judgment and that there were countless people who didn't suffer because of his enduring mercy. But in the end, the judgment came. And I have to believe, and I can't support this by a specific scripture, but I have to believe that any individual who dies prematurely and did not in themselves cause the sin, did not in, but in themselves clung to God and, and worship God, that God will take care of those people in the final judgment, in the final resurrection. They will be rewarded with eternal life. But, uh, you know, I guess that takes us a little too far afield from our topic. The point is that in the midst of your suffering, God is enough. And even if you lose everything, God is still going to be there with you. And I I totally agree with Brandon. Our world is not some sort of mechanistic place. I think those who reduce it to such, following on the heels of the Enlightenment mentality of the 1800s, really just haven't updated their understanding of science to include quantum theory and other advances that clearly indicate that everything is not mechanistically predictable, certainly not on the level of neurons and consciousness and the the really smallest levels of creation itself, quarks and electrons and everything else that builds up into our our world and our actions. So thanks for writing in. I would love to hear more from anyone who has something else to contribute to that episode. It really is a difficult subject to talk about, but I was just so impressed by the Book of Lamentations and the, the audacity of hope of that statement that says, in this I will still have hope, that God's character is essentially chesed, is essentially steadfast love, is essentially emmet, faithfulness. So uh, thanks, everybody. We'll see you next week. If you'd like to support this ministry, you can do that at restitutio.org. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.